Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And whether you are with us in person or on the live stream, whether it's through Facebook or YouTube, we offer a very, very warm welcome to you. If you happen to be watching us and joining with us through the live stream, I would love to encourage you. Now, watch how tech-savvy I can be from time to time. Check in. You see that? I think that's official Facebook, YouTube language right there. So check in. Like us. Follow us. I hear the more we get, you know, likes and all of that stuff, we get more swag from them, more bells and whistles. So, you know, if you're watching on the, on the uh, live stream, please check in, like us, follow us, do all of that. We would love that. And it also helps for you all to be a part of the community. Even though it's virtual, and we understand it's not the same thing, but any way we can be inclusive and include you as part of our community, we would love to have uh, that opportunity to do that. A couple of things in here. If you're visiting with us this morning, we want to offer a warm welcome to you. We're thrilled you've chosen to visit with us uh, this morning. And for everyone, if you are on the end of the row, there are friendship pads and we would encourage you, and this is for everyone, this is for members and regular attenders and visitors alike, sign the friendship pad, pass it down to, watch my line, to your friend that's sitting with you, and then we'll be able to get to know you a little bit. A couple of quick announcements. Uh, this is Labor Day weekend, and tomorrow is actually Labor Day, so the office is closed in observance of Labor Day, so the office, office will reopen Tuesday morning at 8.30, so if you are trying to get Yvonne or Megan tomorrow, uh, you won't be successful. They won't be here. They're taking off. That, that sounds right. They should have offered Labor Day. That makes sense. Uh, also, next Saturday, we are having the back-to-school break on the lake. I love how that sounds. Uh, Eric and Clara Stogner have been gracious enough to offer their home and the lake for us to, uh, this is for all youth and their friends to come on out and have a great time. It begins next Saturday at 1.30, and I like that it says dash until. I don't know if they're ready for that. Kid, you know, young people have a lot of energy. That could be until what? Sunday morning church? I have no idea what until means, but it does say until. So those are some of the things going on in the life of the church. The announcement page has plenty of things for you to read I will encourage you when you get home, not during my sermon, unless it's that boring and you feel like you have, but I would really encourage you to do it more when you got home, so we would appreciate that. So there are things for you to uh, peruse and do that. So now as the prelude is played, uh, let's prepare our hearts. We're actually coming into the very presence of God. What a holy time this is to do that. So let's prepare our hearts for worship.
Jamie Smith, a writer, says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms or shapes our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. I think it's very important for us to remind ourselves that when we come into worship, it's not primarily simply about what we're doing. It's about what God is doing in us. And worship, then, is our response to the worth and to the majesty and to the glory of God. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 99, verses 1 to 3. And recognize, as I read the call to worship and as we pray the invocation, the Lord is forming your loves and your longings and your wants. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Lord, we are so grateful that you reign. In the midst of what can appear to be the chaos of the world, we have the reality, what Francis Schaeffer called true truth, that you are in charge, that you rule, that you reign. And so we acknowledge that. We take great comfort in that, and we praise you. We pray that we would be a community of people this morning praising your great and awesome name, and we invoke your presence now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to join with us and to work amongst us, and we pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Friends, one of the great hymns of the faith is, O Worship the King. Let's stand and sing together.
ancient creed that although it was not uh, penned directly by the apostles is a wonderful summation of their doctrine and their teaching and as such it unites the church throughout all ages including our own it's a fundamental summary of what it is that we believe as followers of Jesus Christ And so, friends, as part of our worship, let's confess together this creed known as the Apostles' Creed. And so let's together in unison state what it is that we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us stand together and sing this great song, How Great Is Our God.
now think about it. As we go to the Lord in prayer, both with the Lord's prayer and our pastoral prayer, we get to actually commune with this great God who is not only high and holy, but stoops down to come to and to live with his children so that we actually commune with the living God. So let's recite and pray together this prayer that has been given to us by our Savior, Jesus Christ, and then I will lead us in a pastoral prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we praise you. Oh, what love that you have bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And I love how the Apostle John puts it and repeats after almost kind of like, and you guys probably don't even believe this. And so he says, and that is what you are. Through Jesus Christ and through our union with him, we are your children. We have that security, that safety. We call on you. You nurture us, you nourish us, you feed us. You are our good shepherd. And so, Lord, we do praise you. And recognizing who you are, we hallow your name. We ask, since you are holy, that we would acknowledge your holiness and be set apart for you. And, Father, as we recognize that you are forming and shaping our wants and our loves and our longings, Jesus, you said that we are to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, may they not just simply be trite words for us. May it be truly our first longing, our first love, our first priority is to want to seek first, above all things, above our own comfort, above our life going well, above blessings, above getting our way, whatever our preference might be. May we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. We live, Father, in a world that just seems, seems to be in such chaos. And so we lament and we long for the coming of your kingdom. We long for a time when there will be no more wars, when there will be no more injustice, when there will be no more natural disasters. And as we pray for our daily bread, we think of those in affliction. We think of those who have been impacted by the hurricane and the storms, both in New Orleans and Louisiana, and as well as in the Northeast and Pennsylvania and New York and New Jersey. So many have been impacted. Loss of power, loss of life, loss of property. Father, we ask for your comfort and Father, we ask your forgiveness, forgiveness that we forget you so often, that we go through each and every day not remembering your presence and your power. We need to be brought back. May we live lives of repentance, and may we forgive those who sin against us, 
May we be a gracious and forgiving people. And we do pray for our own holiness. We ask that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so, Lord, search our hearts, know our ways, test us and try us, see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. For we acknowledge and recognize and praise you that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. And we humbly come before you in Jesus' name. Amen.
You may be seated. You're going to find out very quickly as I read the text this morning that that was a most appropriate anthem, Michael W. Smith's Lord Have Mercy, uh, because we are looking at this morning, and we're kind of ending a major section of Paul's letter to the Romans. Within Romans chapters 1 through 4, which is kind of where we're going, looking at uh, this thesis that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, what Paul is showing is our universal need for the gospel. So in other words, here's your visual image, here's your picture. We're all on Lake Oconee and we don't have our individual boats. We have one giant boat with the human race in the boat. Now, unfortunately, this boat is the boat of sin. It's the boat of the human condition. Now, I know you can't wait for some good news sermons, right? Guess what? After this, next week, we start with verse 21 and Paul explicating and sharing God's solution, which is that wonderful doctrine of justification by faith. We're going to introduce it a little bit this morning, but that's kind of where we're going. And so what Paul has been doing is he started with the Gentiles, and he basically highlighted how they need the gospel, That looked at their life of immorality. That was chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And then if the Jewish folks and the conservative folks were, you know, kind of the religious folks, folks who go to church and all that, were sitting there and going, yeah, that's right, Paul, it's them. It's all those people. Paul kind of begins chapter 2 when he says, "Uh, therefore, you who pass judgment on others, you have no excuse. And he begins to show how they all are in the same boat. Had to make them happy. I'm in the same boat with Gentiles? Not sure I like that, but they're in the same boat. And they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now he gets to the end of this, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, what I'm going to read, and he basically says very explicitly, all are alike are under sin. All are alike are in the same boat. So friends, would you pray with me? And then we're going to read the text, which is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Father, we come before you and we ask that the Holy Spirit would now be our teacher. We claim and we love and we acknowledge that great promise that your word does not return void or empty, but accomplishes what you've set out for it to accomplish. Lord, I take great comfort and confidence in that, and I pray that you would do your work in us, both individually and corporately. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 3 at verse 9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth 
is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. All right, the Apostle Paul, like a master builder, like a master craftsman, is inviting his hearers, his readers, his listeners into God's courtroom to hear God's case against them. And he does so in three ways. Yeah, I'm back to a three-point sermon this morning. He does so in three ways. He lays the charge, he gives the evidence, he declares a verdict. See, one of the things that Paul is wanting to do is speak to both his Jewish and his Gentile, uh, the members of the congregation there at Rome, and he is saying, God is judge. God alone is judge. And he's an impartial judge. He's a faithful judge. So he lays out a charge. He lays out, because he's an impartial judge. You don't just lay a charge and don't give evidence. He gives plenty of evidence. And then he finally gives a verdict. Verse 9 describes the charge. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already, here's your word, they've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The charge that Paul is making is that every person, this is the human condition, every person is alike under sin. For Gentiles, it was easy to see. For the more religious, it was a little bit more under the surface. But it was still there. See, we have such an easy tendency to deceive ourselves. We have a very easy tendency to live kind of moralistic, performance-oriented lives. Trying to put our best foot forward, all of this. I know I struggle with this. And sometimes you need to be jolted a little bit out of that. I've had a couple moments like that in my life. And I've gotten over one of them enough that I think I'm ready to share it with you now. You ever play a game? You ever do? And maybe I should look at Rachel and Russ and Jan and some. When you work with youth, do you ever do a game called Share Your Most Embarrassing Moment? Sounds like a fun game, doesn't it? Okay, mine is, mine is easy to share because I had it. Now, recognize I am, and I think you know this about me by now, I'm a type A personality. I like to be driven. I like to go. That's why COVID and pneumonia was so frustrating for me. Sit on a couch for five weeks? That was absolutely horrific. I'm like, is it time to get up yet? Is it time? We gotta... So I'm very driven. I'm always, I'm a little bit on the perfectionistic side. I try to be perfect. I always want to be good enough. But I had a moment in my life where I was kind of jolted out of that. And it was one of those embarrassing moments. Okay? Evie and I have been in ministry our whole married life. And this is when I was an associate pastor at our church in Oklahoma City. And so I was leading kind of a small group. You all call them home fellowship groups. We called them care groups back then. And we were going to a care group, and it was a Sunday afternoon. 
And so I don't remember if the group started at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock. But we're driving down. And of course, what happens? We're running late. Now, what does that do to this moralistic, perfectionistic, type A person? We're running late. So what does Jeff do? Does he really obey the laws of the, of the road? You know, is he driving the speed limit down from Edmond to Oklahoma City? So I'm doing well. I'm getting there. I get all the way into the folks' neighborhood without getting caught. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And I drive up and just, I don't know, 100 yards or whatever prior to their house is a stop sign that I thought was a very appropriate suggestion. You know, I, I'm one of those things where I kind of, and of course, we're late, so I'm like, I've got to be there. So I kind of roll. I do slow down. I'm not going 35 or 45 or whatever anymore. And I kind of roll into it and then roll through it. And I go, that was a good suggestion. Stop or slow down. I was kind of, it was a yellow stop sign. And I moved in that direction. And I pull up and I park outside the home where we were having our care group that evening. And of course, I'm thinking, until I looked in the rearview mirror. And I'm like, huh, wonder what those lights are for. And the house, I don't know how many kids were at the house. I think they had six kids, but I thought there was about 39. We're all at the front window. Pastor Birch is getting arrested. I wish I could say that was the only time in my life that I had to be reminded that I was under sin, that this moralistic, performance-oriented, stay on the treadmill, always try to be perfect, always try to be good enough. I need jolts like that all the time. You know why? Because I forget the human condition, and I forget my condition. I forget that verse 9 is true of Jeff Birch. What then are we Jews, and not just Jewish, are we religious people? Are we church-going people? Are we Reformed Presbyterian PCA people? Any better off? And Paul says, no. That we have already charged that all, both the moral and the immoral, are alike under sin. Now, we need to understand exactly what the charge is that's being made here. What does Paul mean when he uses the phrase under sin? It is a legal position. He is describing a condition. He's describing a status. One of the best commentaries on the book of Romans is the one, and yes, I have every volume, and yes, the deacons helped me move every volume of all. This was in one of the 90-some-odd boxes of books that I finally got up on my shelves this week. All 90 boxes are now unpacked. But David Martin Lloyd-Jones has one of the best commentaries on the book of Romans, and he puts it this way, very insightful. He says, the Bible never says, is he a good man? The Bible doesn't ask how much good he does or whether he is respectable. It doesn't ask those questions at all. It says every man, every human being is either under sin or under grace. In other words, we must always think of ourselves 
not primarily in terms of addictions or of any particular things that are true about us. It is our whole condition that matters. And he goes on to say, let me use an analogy. He says, if you visited a foreign country, the first thing they would want to know about you is not the color of your hair or eyes or your bank balance or whether you're a nice person. The first thing they would want to know is what country you belong to. Are you a citizen of this country or a foreigner? They would want to know the realm to which you belong. So you hear that? If later in the book of Romans, Paul says we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, we have to learn to think correctly. And that doesn't just mean certain bits and pieces of information. This means when we look at other people, there are fundamentally two kinds of people in the world. You are either under sin or you are under grace. And they are realms. They are conditions. And Paul is making the charge here that everybody, no matter who, no matter what, no matter what your achievements, no matter what your accomplishments, no matter what you've done in life, you are born naturally in the realm of sin. You are born in that kingdom. Tim Keller calls them pools. He says you are either in one pool or the other. You're in the pool of sin or the pool of grace. And we are all born in the pool of sin. Doesn't mean we are as bad as we possibly could be. Doesn't mean we are all Hitlers or Jeffrey Dahmers or Mother Teresa's on the other hand. It simply means the charge is you're born in sin. That's the charge. Now, God's a faithful judge, right? He's got to lay out evidence. Okay, this is the fun part of the, of the sermon because there's plenty of evidence for the human condition. Look at verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Tim Keller, I feel like, does the best job, a masterful job, of listing out several areas or several categories where sin taints, pollutes, corrupts, and affects us. The first area is our relationship to God. The text tells us there is no one righteous, no, not one. Now, remember, to be righteous doesn't mean to do good things. It's a status. It's a condition. It is a position. To be righteous is to be in a right relationship or standing or position with God. And this text, Paul is clearly saying that there is no one in the history of mankind, no one in the universe who naturally is in a right relationship with God. This is actually what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. The fact that there is no one any better or in any better position than anyone else. Think, for example, of what it says in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. When Isaiah says, 
even our best deeds. Talk about a charge and indictment. Even our best deeds are like filthy rags. The very best things you can do are like filthy rags in the sight of God. Verse 18 says there's no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, we do not worship God at the center of our lives. The second area or the second category is the effect it has on our minds. Verse 11 says there is no one who understands. In other words, we said, as Paul said back in chapter 1, we suppress God's truth in unrighteousness. Our thinking has become futile and our foolish hearts were darkened. As one commentator says, notice that the ignorance does not cause the hardness of heart, but the hardness of heart, the sin, is there first. And that causes the ignorance, which leads to a lack of understanding. Sin, or our self-centeredness, leads us to filter out a lot of reality. It is a form of denial. We don't want to see the holiness and sovereignty of God or the sinfulness and weakness of ourselves. As a result, we are blind to many truths, and thus our thinking does not work. Now, let me make an application for us as believers, because even as believers, we need to understand where we might be under grace, and we're going to look at that in a minute. I promise you, stay with me. We're going to get to some unbelievably good news. But even as believers who are under grace, who have the Spirit, we have both the Spirit and the flesh. And so these characteristics, these, this evidence, these effects of sin are still with us. Thus, if as Jeremiah says, we are all self-deceived because of our sin, the heart is deceitful, he says, and beyond cure, we need to be very careful about being too certain about any of our thoughts. Even as believers, we still are mixed in our motives, our thoughts. We are a mixture of flesh and spirit. And so we ought to never be too certain we are right or too certain of our interpretation. See, it's one thing to be certain that God's word is true. Be absolutely certain of that. God's word is 100% true. It's another to be completely certain of your own interpretation of it. That if sin has affected us in all of our faculties, including our thinking, we need to recognize and have some humility and proper self-suspicion before our interpretation. The rest of verse 11 says that no one seeks for God. So in other words, part of the evidence is on our motives. That means none of us really wants to find him. Now, we may object to this and say, wait a second. I know a lot of people who seek God. I know a ton of people who pray. Hey, I watched college football yesterday. I saw Alabama win. I saw Georgia win. See, I love, I love living in SEC country, by the way, where we're wearing our shirts. College pride is in full effect. And guess which team just joined the SEC and will be with the SEC very soon? That's right, folks, Oklahoma, my team, the Oklahoma Sooners. I just, have, I just now know I've got to look at their website later on and buy me an Oklahoma shirt that goes with this nice blue suit so that I can, be, I can be sporting some college pride. Now, we watched them, and all three of those teams won, by the way. 
So it was a good day, right? We're all happy this morning. And you could see the wide receiver. You know, here they throw the pass. The wide receiver catches it. What does he do? He spikes the ball. And then, then they do this kind of something like that. I will not be on season 30 of Dancing with the Stars, by the way. Don't anybody sign me up. But I've seen them do that. Doesn't, mean, doesn't that mean they're seeking God? Doesn't that mean they're seeking for God? Well, time out. Is that what it really means? See, what does it mean to seek God? It means to seek Him for who He is. His truth, His presence, His glory. As our catechism says, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. It's to seek Him for who He is in Himself and not for what we get out of it. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, seeking God is much more active than asking God for things. The moment you realize this content to the word seek, you begin to see that the apostle's statement is quite right. Prayers do not mean that we are seeking God. Seeking God means you are trying to find Him. You commune with Him because He's beautiful. You commune with him just to get him. You want to get his presence. His presence means everything. Lloyd-Jones says to seek God means to desire God above everything and everybody. To seek his glory, to be anxious to promote his glory. In the biblical sense, it means God is the center of our thinking. Do you seek God for himself? If God were not to answer any of your prayers in the sense of what you want, but he was to give you himself, which he does promise, would that be enough for your heart? The text tells us no one seeks for God. All have turned away, which impacts our will. We've turned away from God. As Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own Way. It's kind of like the end of the book of Judges, where it says, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. We need to recognize and remember that our flesh is characterized by this conscious turning away from God, a doing what we think makes the most sense to us. See, we should always pause to ask ourselves, is this really God's truth, or am I seeking my own preferences here? Now, lastly, and the last piece of evidence that is brought forth, if all of this is true of the human condition, we're not seeking for God, our wills, our motives, our thinking, our relationship with God, wouldn't we expect that it would have an effect on our relationships, our horizontal relationships? Should we be surprised that if sin affects our minds, our will, our affections, our motives, that it wouldn't do some pretty heavy damage to our relationships? And we wonder where conflict comes from? I actually think we should be more surprised that there isn't more conflict in our lives. Verse 13 talks about their throat as an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive Tim Keller says that the image that's being used here is that of a grave with rotting bodies in it. Pretty picture, huh? The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Isn't it amazing that the two areas that are spoken of here are deceit or dishonesty and bitterness or anger? That the two main areas you see kind of the fruits of this in our relationship with others is dishonesty, which doesn't just simply mean out and out lying, but all the areas of denial, deceit, dishonesty, and resentment or anger. I'm reminded of James's words in James chapter 3 when he says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. As a result, violence ensues. The way of peace, the way of shalom is totally unknown to us. The Japanese novelist Shusaku Endu puts it this way. He says, sin is not merely what is usually thought, what it is usually thought to be. It's not simply, it includes, but it's not simply to steal and tell lies. But he says, sin is for one man to walk brutally over the life of another and to be quite oblivious of the wounds he has left behind. We've seen the charge. We've seen the evidence. Now what's the verdict? Verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The verdict is in. The judge has spoken. No one will be declared righteous or justified in God's sight by, Paul says, observing the law, and he means trying to be good enough, being moral enough, being religious enough, being spiritual enough. There is no one who can put themselves in an acceptable position by the performance of their lives, which is why Paul is saying you need to have your mouth silenced. That is the condition where we quit we stop justifying ourselves. We stop being defensive and blame-shifting and justifying ourselves. We're silent. What he's talking about there is a heart condition of refusing to justify yourself. So now we have to ask ourselves, how do we get there? And again, here's the good news of the gospel. Only by appropriating, receiving, and resting upon the justification of Christ. See, here's the heart of the good news. And I'm going to leave you with this today, and we're going to be spending the next several weeks looking at this because this is where Paul is going. This is the trajectory of the book of Romans. You all have done such a great job hanging in there with me as I gave you the bad news. Aren't you excited for next Sunday already when we get to focus on a whole lot of good news? You get a taste of it this morning, and I want you to drink up Drink heartily, because here's the heart of the good news of Christ. It is that because of what he has done, coming from heaven to earth, leaving his comfort zone, denying himself, taking up his cross, 
and following his father in obedience through his life, his death, and his resurrection that we can be justified, which means declared righteous, acceptable, good enough. Don't you long to hear those words, you are good enough? I know I do. I long for that. That's the heart of the good news because of Christ. See, the English word justified does not mean to change something in its essence. It doesn't mean to change the thing. It means to change our view of the thing. And I know I'm indebted to Tim Keller, but I think he gives the best story, the best illustration that describes this. It's not to change the thing. It's to change how you look at your view of the thing. And he tells the true story of a particular event in a high school where a teenager in the hall of his high school suddenly went off, hauled off, and slugged another kid. Walloped him. Knocked him cold. People rushed up. You know how it is. People come, fight, fight, fight. Right? Isn't that what happens? Teachers rush up, and the principal saw part of what happened, rushed up and said to the kid, you're out of here. You're going to be expelled. What did the kid say? He said, would you please look in that other kid's pocket? And he looked in the pocket, and there was a gun. And his hand was on the gun, the knocked-out kid. And so the kid said, yes, I did slug him. I knocked him out cold. But he was about to shoot somebody. Now, he did not change his behavior. He said, I slugged him. This is what I did. But how was his behavior justified? He changed the view of his behavior. See, to justify something is not to change the behavior, but how it is regarded, how it is treated, how it is viewed. And the most astounding thing is that the essence of being a Christian is this word justification. That when we are under grace, see, what does justification mean? It means that God, the judge, because he sees us in Christ, we're united to Christ, that God, the judge, can make a verdict about us and say, well, because now I see different evidence, I see the evidence of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, I declare you to be forgiven and righteous. I make a legal declaration, and I treat you based on that legal declaration. I regard you, I view you as under grace. Which is why, let me make an application of this. When we do things like blame shift and justify ourselves, you understand what we're doing when we blame shift? Kind of, and we got this from, you know, we're in good company. It was kind of uh, original sin, Adam and Eve in the garden. The woman made me do it. The serpent made me do it. It's always somebody else's fault. We never own our own stuff. We never own our own brokenness. What are we trying to do? We know we can't change the behavior, change the attitude, change the thought. We're trying to change the view of the behavior. So when we blame shift, we are essentially justifying ourselves. 
maybe even just to ourselves, making, trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We're trying to change our view of ourselves. See, I'm not such a bad guy. I'm X, Y, or Z, whatever. I'm not so bad. Maybe we're trying to change our view of ourselves to ourselves. But do you understand when we do that, we are rejecting the gospel functionally? That we are not appropriating the pronouncement of God and how God views us, that we are forgiven and righteous, that we are justified, that we are seen and viewed and treated. That's why we can say God adores us. That's why we can say God loves us. To become a Christian is to be justified. It doesn't mean you necessarily stop doing things that are bad. You're still a sinner. That's the meaning of Martin Luther's great phrase, simul justus et peccator, meaning simultaneously justified and a sinner. Justified and yet ungodly. An honored failure. At the same time, because we're regarded and viewed and treated by God, non-condemnable and perfectly beautiful in Christ. Because see, understanding justification that you have a new verdict in Christ is where you get the power for your Christian life. It's not in trying harder. It's not in me trying to be a great pastor or a great husband. It's not in you being the best grandparent. If that's the motive for your life, I got bad news for you. You're doing it for yourself. The verdict is in. God looks at you, and if you're in Christ, he says, awesome, just as beautiful as Jesus is. Don't you want to hear that verdict? Don't you want to appropriate that? That's where the power to love God and love neighbor comes from. There is no need to justify yourself. No need to blame shift. Christ received your verdict. You get his. Father, I know I have to keep preaching the gospel because I, have, I don't understand it the way I want to, the way I need to. Father, help me to appropriate and help us to appropriate more and more that Jesus, you received our verdict. You received the verdict, for, you know, for me of being selfish, demanding, needy, performance-oriented, always trying to be good enough. And I receive your verdict, loving, self-denying, giving, devoted. Help us appropriate this in our lives and especially in our relationships. Lord, thank you for your word that is so consistent. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. I told you the sermon would end on a good note. And this hymn's even better. Jesus, what a friend for sinners.
friends, now receive the blessing of God, the benediction. May the love of God, the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.